0: This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, I've got a terrific show lined up for you. Joining me in the second and third segments of today's program is returning guest Carl Denninger. I'm going to chat with Carl about all the money creation that's been taking place, the, again, massive federal operating deficits, and how you and your money will be affected. And if you are a new listener and you have not yet downloaded the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app, you can go to the App Store, either the Google or the Apple App Store, and you can download the app by searching Your R-L-A. That's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A. And uh, you can download the app. And the app will give you access to my weekly newsletter titled Portfolio Watch, the podcast version of this radio program, as well as the weekly Headline Roundup webinar. So again, if you haven't yet downloaded the app, I would encourage you to do that. You know, when you look at the topic of today's program, and that is government spending and money creation and how you are going to be affected, uh, you, you have to start with just the facts, Last year, there was an operating deficit, and by last year, I mean last fiscal year, of about $3 trillion. Now, that alone is mind-blowing when you think about it. This year, entering the year, there was a $2.3 trillion federal deficit. And now, with the recently passed stimulus package, which will cost $1.9 trillion, we're looking at approximately a $4.2 trillion operating deficit. Now, the Washington politicians are chatting about another $3 trillion infrastructure package. That will be over time. If that happens to be over 10 years, it might add another $300 billion to the deficit this year. But it's not unreasonable to assume that we could have an operating deficit this year of $4.5 trillion, which is amazingly 50% greater than the operating deficit from last year. So all these deficits, the question is, how are they being funded? Used to be that whenever the U.S. government had an operating deficit, they would issue bonds, and China and Japan and other countries around the world needing to inventory U.S. dollars to participate in international trade, they would literally gobble up this debt. It was easy to finance this deficit. That is no longer the case, as we have discussed here on the program many times. So it is now being funded largely through money creation. Now, on last week's program, we talked about the fact that We're starting to see, as a result of this money creation, I believe, inflation now emerge. Agricultural commodity prices are up significantly year over year. I expect that you'll see that reflected in food prices when you go to the grocery store here in the near future. If you have been to the gas station to fill up your car recently and you compare what it cost you to fill it up now to just a few months ago, you know that we're seeing price inflation as far as fuel is concerned. Certainly, if you're building a house or finishing the basement, you know that lumber prices have been affected as well. So we're starting to see inflation as a result of money creation, and yet... There's more money creation on the horizon. Now, when you hear a politician say, we're going to fund this by taxing the rich, we're only going to raise taxes on people making over $400,000 a year, I would encourage you to do your own research and look at the numbers. This is political rhetoric. You cannot fund deficits of this magnitude through tax increases. It simply can't be done. And the whole notion of a wealth tax being proposed by people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, where we're going to start imposing a tax on wealth over a certain arbitrarily determined level, well, that is also political rhetoric and doesn't serve any purpose as far as making these numbers somewhat rational, somewhat reasonable. So do your own research. I mean, if you take a look at last year's deficit and this year's deficit, ballparking the numbers, you're looking at about $7.5 trillion in two years. That is a huge operating deficit. Now the reality is, you could confiscate 100% of the wealth of all billionaires. You could pass a law that says if you're a billionaire, too bad, we're taking everything. That raises about $8 trillion. It just about covers the deficit from last year and what I would project it to be this year, but it doesn't solve the debt problem. U.S. national debt by the end of this year will be between 32 and $33 trillion. And it doesn't solve next year's deficit. So how will all these funding gaps actually be covered? Well, money creation is the only answer, and money creation will continue until it can't despite those who are advancing a theory called modern monetary theory that I'll talk about in just a minute. When I start to look at all these numbers and start to ask myself questions, I'm reminded of the quote by the late economist Herbert Stein. Herbert Stein said something that is extremely profound. Listen to this. If something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Isn't that profound? If something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Well, even if you're not a trained economist, even if you're not a trained financial advisor, if you're part of the majority of the population that still have some common sense, you know that money creation cannot go on forever. See, the world is changing. When it comes to planning for retirement, when it comes to managing your investments, a lot has changed. The question is, are you keeping up? I want to share another quote with you, and I share it with you because I want you to seriously consider it as it relates to your retirement planning, as it relates to how you're managing your money. And I would encourage you to seriously consider this quote and how it may affect you because one thing I've learned over many years working in this industry is that no one cares as much about your money as you do. Now, if you're doing things the traditional way in a world that has changed, this quote by Eric Hoffer, who is the author of the book, The True Believer, May apply. Here's what Mr. Hoffer said Learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. So, what are you doing to educate yourself? Learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. Don't let that be you. My April special report uh, will be available later this week. By going to requestyourreport.com, you can get a copy of it. The April report is titled, Are We Rocketing to Reset? Are We Rocketing to Reset? And what does that mean for you? And what might you think about doing? Now, going back to the Hoffer quote, Learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. Well, who are the learned? Well, I always think of the academics. And when you look at the academics and what many academics are putting forth today, they're putting forth a theory called modern monetary theory. And I'll talk about this more in the last segment of today's program, but this theory actually was initially put forth by an economist and theorist, underlining theorist here, by the name of Warren Mosler back in 1992. So that's 29 years ago. Now, Mr. Mosler, along with a university professor based in Australia by the name of Bill Mitchell, put forth this idea that if a country has the ability to print money, they can print as much money as they need, and they don't have any financial constraints when it comes to financing. In other words, the government just cannot run out of money. Now, they say that the government really should have a budget, but... Under this theory, the government doesn't have to worry about the deficit because it can just fund any projects it wants to fund by printing new money from its central bank. Well, what about inflation? Well, in the last segment of today's program, I'll talk to you about their solution for inflation, and their solution reminds me of another quote by Eric Hoffer who said, The hardest thing to cope with is not selfishness or vanity or deceitfulness, but sheer stupidity. That's how I would view this. As the money printing continues, I would encourage you to get tangible. There are strategies outlined in my April report. Are we rocketing to reset? You can get your copy by visiting requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with Carl Denninger.
1: Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me again on today's program is returning and popular guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a prolific commentator on uh, health care, economics, uh, and uh, other things as well. Uh, you can read his uh, blog at market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check that out. And Carl, welcome back to the program.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: So, Carl, let's jump in. Um, at the beginning of the year, I believe the United States was projected to have a $2.3 trillion deficit. That's before the so-called stimulus package of $1.9 trillion. Now they're talking about another $3 trillion infrastructure package, but the New York Times says really only a trillion of it will go to actual infrastructure. So, Give me your take on this. And the second part of the question is, this will all be funded through more money creation. Um, is this the end of the road?
2: Yeah, it probably is. But let's make sure that we define our terms correctly. Okay. So these two bills, well, three bills, you count the, the, all three of them from the start of COVID until now, including this latest $1.9 trillion, uh, those are very different than the normal way that the government accounts for things. So all of that money that was printed and put into the system, uh, for the most part, it all happened in that current fiscal year. All right, now this is very different because this this infrastructure package is being done under the usual rules for accounting, and that's the impact and the spending over 10 years. So you got to be very careful because when these bills get passed, and numbers get thrown around like you know 3 trillion dollars it's not 3 trillion dollars now it's about 300 billion a year over 10 years all right so this is this is very different and this is one of the things that i've had a lot of trouble with with talking to people about this in the media and in the economics world is that these these covid related things that start that you know from about march of 2020 all the way till this point have been accounted completely differently, and it it has to do with the arcane rules of how the Congressional Budget Office is required to operate. Because the CBO is, of course, a generation of Congress. Congress makes the rules. They don't have a choice as to how they report things and how they put things on paper and what they you know what they say. They have to follow the guidelines and the rules that Congress put forward. So when Congress says you have to account for this over ten years, well, that's what they do because. Those are the rules. So this this three trillion or whatever it ends up being, uh, it's going to be about three hundred billion uh, on an annualized basis. The problem today is that I don't know that even a trillion of that is actually going to go to infrastructure. I, I I've not seen yet an outline of what's in that. I don't think anybody has. I think it's still being written. And then there's another bill that apparently is behind this. There's two components of it. One that they're going to try to put through through some reconciliation move. And then there's another one behind it that clearly will not qualify because it is it is not revenue related. And so you can't get there from here, essentially. Uh, But the there are issues with them doing that, because if Congress uses reconciliation to do this, they will have used up their last reconciliation capacity within this Congress, because each congressional term is two terms. You can only use it once per year so they can use it. They can use up their second one now, but then they're out and they've only got 50 votes.
1: So let's just take a look at all the money creation that has been taking place. And the fed chairman, uh, Mr. Powell came out and said that they're going to maintain an accommodative stance moving forward. Uh, So, how long can this go on carl i mean it's it seems that modern monetary theory is now the uh, policy du jour
2: well the bond market is saying i don't think so
1: yeah <laughs> bond yields are way up in the last year
2: well especially the longer end okay the ten, the 10 year treasury is, is you know is up substantially and it's been up essentially in a straight line so this is this is the reaction that you're going to get um, the the impact has already shown up in places like gasoline. Look at lumber futures. The the price of lumber. Oh you know, well, just walk into Home Depot and look at <laughs> look at what they want for two by fours. Yeah, crazy. Um, yeah, it's insane. And and that is the problem with doing this sort of thing is that um, let's say that you want to build a house. Well, you got yourself a problem, okay? Because as the longer end goes up, as the ten year goes up cost of money for mortgages goes up um, at the same time the cost of building materials goes up <laughs> and and the poor sop that wants to buy the house gets it in both sides right I mean there's there isn't anywhere to you know to hide from that the the other inflationary pressure that's going to show up very shortly and it's already starting to is in food and of course food and energy are the two places where you absolutely do not want it if you are the Fed or if you are an ordinary American, because those are things you cannot avoid buying. Uh, And then on top of that, you have the medical monster, which is, uh, I mean, essentially trying to leverage itself into a permanent place in American society with tens of billions of dollars spent on on quite possibly dangerous and worthless shots uh, each and every year from here on forward. And that's the scaremongering that's going on. I don't know if they're going to get away with it, but that's what they're trying to do. And, and, you know, there's, an, there's a pretty clean argument to be made that, all, that the entire thing with Obamacare was about that segment of our economy that was about to collapse under its own weight. And it had gotten about 20 percent of GDP. And uh, there, is a, a, there is an argument to be made, not a lot of evidence for it yet, but an argument to be made that essentially everything that we did with COVID was round two of that as it was about to collapse under its own weight again.
1: Carl, let me be cynical for a minute because uh, I'm sure you're familiar with some of the uh, some of the agenda items being put forth by the uh, World Economic Forum under the uh, guise of a great reset. And uh, there's been some open talk recently of by both Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, and uh, Jerome Powell that a digital dollar is now a high priority. Uh, just from a cynical perspective, uh, is all this money creation really accelerating uh, this, this idea of a great reset?
2: Well, it is, yes, but there's, I think people need to understand that there is a very severe problem that comes with any kind of digital currency. We, one thing that physical currencies all have is that they're self-validating. When you walk into the, the grocery store and you pull out a $20 bill, I don't have to consult some master list to know if that's valid. Now, if there's a question, uh, yes, I can. I could, you know, because the Federal Reserve and the Treasury know whether or not the serial number is, you know, is legitimate. And if it has been seen somewhere else, in other words, if there's, you know, there's $10,000, $20 bills all with the same serial number on them, they're going to know, okay, or whether it has never been issued. On the other hand, you and I transact every day without anybody doing that, okay, without any tracking. And so in theory, while currency is traceable, in practice, it is not because in ordinary commerce, it validates itself. I can look at a 20 and I can tell you whether or not it's any good. With digital currency, that's not true. And this is a huge problem because if the government decides to, for example, confiscate your $20 and it's a digital currency, they can do that with push of a button and that $20 bill that you had is all of a sudden void. Just think about the consequence of that if you do something that the government doesn't like. It doesn't have to be illegal, it just has to be something they don't like.
1: So, Carl, the, 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 the fact that um, China now has been testing a digital currency to go down this road a little bit further and Jerome Powell said that it's a high priority for us and Janet Yellen essentially said we need to stamp out Bitcoin, which is not a central bank-issued digital currency. Uh, they certainly seem to be headed in that direction. Would your opinion be that they're not going to be successful?
2: Uh, my opinion would be that if they try it, they're going to stoke a civil war and they're going to deserve it. Because what China has done has essentially, they, they implemented where this ends up always going, which is a so score and the ability to restrict people's movement and economic activity based upon their political leanings, not based upon whether or not they've committed a crime or been indicted. You know, let's face it. If you commit a crime, you get indicted, you get convicted, you go to jail. You can't engage in much economic activity in jail, right? <laughs> um, but we're talking about the ability to do that without any evidence and without any proof that you did anything wrong, no adjudication and no appeal. Um it, my opinion is that sets off the sort of social and and civil unrest that ultimately destroys the nation. And and I do think they may attempt it, but it would be the dumbest thing that humans, perhaps the dumbest thing we've done since rushing out untested vaccines into arms.
1: So, Carl, we've got just uh, maybe a minute and a half left in this segment. We can pick it up on the other side, but I want to go back and talk about the inflation piece. And, And you had suggested that certainly you know, we're seeing inflation in lumber prices, uh, agricultural commodity prices are up significantly, that will soon translate into higher grocery prices. Uh, under what scenario do you think that the Fed reverses policy? I mean, if we see significant inflation, do they reverse? And if they do, uh, what exactly does it look like? And we can pick it up on the other side as well.
2: I, I think the Federal Reserve is going to get backed into a corner and be forced to start tightening liquidity and allowing the short end to rise uh, sometime within the next 6 to 12 months. And when they do, every asset that is based upon short-term liquidity and debt is going to have a massive repricing in the downward direction.
1: So you would expect that, that would the bond market would crash, we would see interest rates spike, you'd see the housing market crash, and it would be a chain reaction.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're going to see a, a perhaps a 50% re-rating in essentially everything.
1: Well, my guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. We're going to pick it up on the other side and get Carl's forecast. We'll also talk a little bit of politics and a little bit of health care. That's when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis and You are listening to RLA Radio. My guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, Carl's blog is available at market-ticker.org. The website again is market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out. And uh, Carl, we we ended the last segment uh, with you saying that you would not be surprised at all to see a 50% repricing. This it, it, essentially what would be a, a deflationary collapse. What asset classes would you say would be affected? When you say everything, do you mean everything?
2: Yeah, I do. I, I and the more levered you are, and the fewer actual hard assets you have, the worse you're going to get it. So the those there's there's sort of two distinctions in corporate life today, although they're less so than they used to be. Used to be, you know, there was a there was a group called the Nifty Fifty. Uh, You're old enough to remember it. I'm old enough to remember it. It was essentially all industrials that had large installed bases, so steel mills, car manufacturers, things like this. Um, Nowadays, everybody and their brother has gone to this asset light model where you don't even own your copy or it's leased. (laughs) Okay. I, I had people trying to do that with, with me when I ran my internet company. They're like, oh, you ought to lease this car. No, I want to buy it. Well, why? Well, it's an asset. Why would I lease something that I'm going to use for the next 10 years? That's stupid. Uh, but that that's the kind of thing that has gone on. And as a result, for example, Amazon, all of their their – as a middleman, they own basically nothing. All of their warehouses are leased. Their data centers—they may they lease the building. They may they own the equipment in some cases inside. However, that's computer equipment. It's worth ten cents on a dollar six months after you buy it. These are firms that all have essentially no hard asset value. There's still a few places that do. General Electric has some, um, of course. Uh, you know, steel companies X, okay, uh, and uh, and a handful of others. But the majority of firms today, everything is is not just financed, but it's not actually theirs. And the problem with that is that you, what you are trading on then the entire price, is some multiple of operating cash flow, which is discounted by interest rates. And so as rates go up, that operating cash flow discount goes down, and so does price. And that's that's just the way it goes. And so even assuming that these firms don't find themselves in a trap where they have their, their building on a lease, the lease comes up, it gets renegotiated. The guy that, that, you know, commercial property is typically not financed like your house, right? It doesn't have a 30-year mortgage, and then you own it. Those continually get rolled over. So your lease comes up for this office space, and oh, by the way, the cost of the money to roll that note has gone up by 50%. What do you think happens to your rent? Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean this is, you know, and then you've got the other side of it, which is the the glut pressure that is happening from all these people who went to work at home during COVID. Those buildings are empty. You've got a substantial number of those tenants that are saying with these distancing measures that you have in place, masks, you know, you got to stay 6 feet apart, all this stuff. You have essentially rendered our office space uninhabitable because our people can't get up the elevators into the office to work. Under those rules. And therefore, they're refusing to pay. That stuff is all going to go through the courts. It will all get sorted out. But in the meantime, well, same thing with the, the rental moratoriums. Okay, you can't throw somebody out of their residence that isn't paying their rent. Um, excuse me, the guy who owns the building has to pay the mortgage and the property taxes. All right, at some point, this comes apart. And we keep cranking the spring tighter and tighter, it is going to break, and and, and it will break into an increasing rate environment, which is the absolute worst possible place for it to happen. So yeah, I I see a major dislocation coming in real estate and in the common stock market. I, I think it's going to be bad.
1: Carl, when you look at stocks, just for example, um, I, I recently read a piece that uh, you take a look, for example, just at Coca-Cola, which is just one example. Uh, their earnings over the last ten years are down thirty cents or thirty uh, percent on a per-share basis. Uh, their long-term debt has uh, tripled, and yet their stock has doubled. None of this makes sense.
2: Well, it it does when you consider that the alternative. See, it's all discounted cash flow versus the return that you can get in fixed income, where you can use leverage. So in the treasury market, you can use essentially an unlimited amount of leverage because there is no, there's considered to be no default risk. And so the large institutions do that. They buy a bond, then they use that as collateral to borrow more money, they buy another bond. <laughs> the problem with this is, is that, of course, the price of that bond is the inverse of the yield. And so when rates go up, if you've taken on leverage to do that, you you will literally get wiped out. You'll have nothing left and this is that is the preference though is that's driven people into common stocks because the rates have been so low that the number of turns of the crank that you've had to make in order to be able to get some kind of return has been obscene and people said you know what there's uh, i mean the risk of this going bad on us historically everybody predicted that japan was going to blow up you know for 20 years and it never did uh so the risk looks relatively low but if it does we're done and so we're we're just not gonna go there. We can look at look at the chart on Amazon. Good lord, you know, look, look at the what's happened with the price. We we'll buy that. And that works right up until it turns around and goes the other direction. And you have people that are willing to clip coupons and and you know and, and take that. Um, the Fed ran this repression game. People think this is the first time it's ever happened. It isn't. The Fed ran this repression game after World War II into the ni- through the nineteen fifties and into the sixties. Everything seemed fine right up until about the time Nixon got into office, right? And then, of course, who got the blame for it? Carter. (laughs) But but Carter wasn't really responsible for it. It was what the Fed and the government had done in the years after World War II over an extended period of time. And we've been doing the same thing now for the last 20 years since the crash in the dot-com space.
1: So, Kyle, for our listeners maybe that aren't familiar with, you know, how that policy evolved uh, after World War II through the early 70s, uh, give them some detail.
2: Well, essentially what the Federal Reserve did is they, they announced a policy that they were going, what they called repression, and they were going to clamp the long end of the bond curve. And, and uh, they did it as a, you know, we're, we're coming back from war. We need cheap money available to, you know, look at the Eisenhower expressway system. All right. We have to be able to build expressways. We have to be able to, you know, do these things. And it, everybody, all of, all of the economists of the time told them that, told everybody, you can do this. It's a free lunch. There won't be a consequence for this. And it seemed to work out for quite a long period of time. During that time, you had the entire Great Society system, the, the, all those programs came into place you had uh, the the expansion of the welfare system you had medicare you had medicaid you had all of, all of these social programs that appeared to be free that all were put into place and then as time goes on oops all of a sudden it doesn't work that way we have an oil embargo we have some arabs that get mad at us and and the entire thing essentially unraveled all at once
1: and and Carl, when you when you take a look at what happened in the early seventies, I mean, a lot of this uh you know, really led to the link between the US dollar and gold. It was a quasi gold exchange standard system, that being eliminated. And and now for the last fifty years, uh there's been absolutely no restraint on the part of the Fed, and that wasn't the case from for the most part, from World War Two through nineteen seventy one. So does this mean this crash has to be worse than the one we saw back in the seventies?
2: Well, I don't think it's a question I, I, I don't think it's a question here when it comes to the you know, this being unprecedented or anything like that. And and you have to remember it's not the Federal Reserve. Congress is the source of every dollar of all of this. The the Federal Reserve does not have anything to transact in if the Treasury does not emit credit beyond their taxation. So, I mean, we we need to stop calling this a Fed-driven thing. It's not. This is driven by the 535 clowns in Washington, D.C., who we keep sending back to office.
1: So, Carl, what, just your opinion on this. When, when this unraveling occurs, how do you think the political landscape will change?
2: Well, I really don't know. Um, I, I I just I just don't know, and that's you know it's it's very difficult to know where we are with that. Um, part of the problem with this is that the government is not going to turn around and say, oh, by the way, we're going to cut our, you know, our expenditures by fifty percent to come back within the, the power to tax, right? I mean, <laughs> and and when I started writing my column um that was about a 10 or 15% requirement and and now it's not okay our actual you know they say a structural deficit was 2 or 3% back in the, the you know in the early 2000s and you know 2005 2006 2000 that's just total nonsense um, you have to add in the unfunded spending that is coming from medicare and medicaid and and that you know that deficit was running around you know 10 11% and, in the, you know, in the in the, uh, the mid-2000 timeframe. Now, with with what we've done with COVID, um, there is a reasonable estimate that this fiscal, it could be 30. That's Argentina-style stuff.
1: Yeah, 4,000% inflation stuff.
2: Well, and it also, however, means that if you wanted to put this back to where it ought to be, remember, when you, when, if you cut off that spending, what's going to happen is your tax receipts are going to go down dramatically. Not a little bit, a lot. And so, what's going to end up happening is that you don't have to cut back 30% of federal spending. You have to cut it in half. Now, how are you going to do that?
1: Yeah, g- g- that's that's a good point. Um, and and ultimately, Carl, I mean, I, we've got a, a couple minutes left in this segment. I mean, if somebody's listening to this and we're we're talking about the, the magnitude of these problems that literally seem like they're unsolvable. Uh, What advice would you have someone who's thinking about, hey, I'd like to retire. I'd like to have the same retirement my parents did.
2: Well, I don't think you're going to have the same retirement your parents did. Um, The unfortunate reality is that if you are in today's world and you're not retired today, uh, your parents, especially over the last 20 years, have essentially stolen your retirement. And this is an argument I got into with my father years ago before he passed, is that he already spent the money. He voted for policies that spent the money that was supposed to pay for these things. You can't spend the money twice. <laughs> Just spend it spent. So, you know, you decided you wanted these policies as a you know, within your government. You got them. You voted for them and you got them. Now you need to shut up and deal with it. And, of course, you know, he didn't like that very much. But that's the reality of it. And and so, you know, we're stuck with the consequences and the outcome. I think the real question is how do we manage what I would tell the people is figure out how how to how to live comfortably on less. Be happy with less and figure out how to do that. And just deal with the fact that's how it is, because the only other alternative you have is is pretty ugly stuff. And I don't think anybody in this country wants to go there. And I hope we don't end up forced into it.
1: Well, the clock says we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. His blog uh, can be read at market-ticker.org. The website, again, is market-ticker.org. Carl, always a pleasure to chat with you and appreciate your perspective, and uh, we'll certainly have you back down the road.
2: Anytime. Thank you very much.
1: We will return after these words.
0: This is RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today. Hey, we're talking about government deficits, massive debts, money creation, and what it means for you. And to that end, I would invite you to get my April special report for free. It's titled, Are We Rocketing to Reset? And you can get your copy of the report by visiting requestyourreport.com the website again is requestyourreport.com Now if you're just tuning in in the first segment of today's program I talked about the fact that last year the US government had an operating deficit of about 3 trillion and this year with all the spending that has already been voted upon and signed into law and other spending that has been discussed we could amazingly see an increase in that deficit of 50%. It could be $4.5 trillion. Now, as I mentioned in the first segment, we have a certain segment of the political class that is telling us we can make the rich pay their fair share to deal with this. We can impose a wealth tax on wealth over a certain level. That is sheer and utter nonsense, and it is complete rhetoric. All you need to do is do the research for yourself, which I would encourage you to do, but check out the numbers. We could be looking at a deficit over two years of more than $7 trillion, maybe $7.5 trillion. If we confiscated 100% of the wealth of every billionaire that lived in this country, we raise $8 billion. It doesn't solve the debt problem. It doesn't put a dent in next year's deficit unless you somehow believe that we're going to operate with a balanced budget. So that brings you to the conclusion that money creation will likely continue until it can't. And in the first segment, I mentioned a quote by the late economist Herbert Stein, who said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. If you apply a little common sense to the whole idea of money creation, you know that Mr. Stein is right. And the world, as I said, is changing. Using traditional planning strategies to try to achieve your financial goals may find you far short of where you want to be. Eric Hoffer very eloquently said that learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. And if you look at the learned, if you look at the academics, and what many academics are actually advancing is a theory titled Modern Monetary Theory. And I want to talk about that a bit in this segment. Modern Monetary Theory quite simply says that governments have no pressures when it deals to financing deficits. They can print as much money as they want. You don't have to worry about a deficit because you can just print new money from your central bank to fund the deficit. Now, Andy Snyder, who is the founder of Manward Digest, had this to say about modern monetary theory. He said, because the U.S. has the dollar, it would no longer have to borrow money. It could just print it. Sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds almost utopian. Snyder said... If the economy is shrinking, the printed money goes into the economy to stimulate it. Otherwise, if the economy is booming, the government would not print as much money and pull back via taxes if the economy gets overheated. Now, those who support modern monetary theory says that inflation is not going to be a problem unless the government doesn't manage this properly. How many of you listening to this have faith in the government to manage this properly. Well, there are progressives like Bernie Sanders and AOC who say this is a great idea, but cooler heads like Warren Buffett and almost surprisingly Fed Chairman Jerome Powell are opposed to the idea. Now, I talk about the whole idea of unmanaged deficits and wildly reckless money creation in my April report report titled, Are We Rocketing to Reset? I would encourage you to go to requestyourreport.com and get your copy. But there is, as I noted in the first segment, another Eric Hoffer quote that describes those who are putting forth modern monetary theory very aptly. The hardest thing to cope with is not selfishness or vanity or deceitfulness, but sheer stupidity. See, are we to believe that excessive money creation will not lead to inflation? Are we to believe that despite the fact that food prices are rising, fuel prices are rising, and lumber prices are through the roof? Are we to believe this despite the fact that reality is something quite different? Brings me back to the first Hoffer quote. Learners, those who educate themselves, inherit the earth. To paraphrase, those who do their own homework, those who care about their money and take time to research it, will have a better chance of being successful than the learned, those who do things the traditional way. Because Hoffer said, learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. That is certainly the case, and we are here to give you educational resources. To that end, you can go to requestyourreport.com and get my special April report, Are We Rocketing to Reset? Be glad to send you a copy absolutely free. Just let us know your name and where to mail it, and we'll be very glad to do that. We also have a number of free resources at our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. The website, again, is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And if you've not yet downloaded the Your RLA app, you can go to the App Store, search under Your RLA. That's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A. And uh, if you just type in Your RLA as one word, the app will pop up. You can download it for free. And once you have the app, you'll have access to all of our resources updated each week for free whenever you want to access them. That's my program for this week. Glad you decided to listen in. Hope you got something you can use, and I'll be back again next week.